Welcome to another exciting episode of the Alternative Investment Podcast. Listen in as your hosts, Jimmy Atkinson and Andy Hagens, discuss tax-advantaged investment strategies to help you grow your wealth. From commodities to real estate, private equity, agribusiness, and more, we cover it all here on the Alternative Investment Podcast. Welcome to the Alternative Investment Podcast. I'm Jimmy Atkinson. And I'm Andy Hagens. Andy, today we're talking about inflation and the state of continued growth into alternative assets in 2022. So Andy, to kick things off, let's talk inflation. What's going on? We've got the highest inflation level in over 40 years. It's at over 8% now. Andy, are you on team transitory or is inflation here to stay with us? <laughs> well, you know... Uh... Jimmy, I don't know that anybody's left on Team Transitory anymore. Uh, I think Team Transitory might be like the Cleveland Browns or something. Uh, that team doesn't look like they're going to win very many games this year. Um, but, but no, in all seriousness, uh, I don't think hardly anyone thinks that inflation will be returning to 2 3 4% in the next few months. Um, I think the real question is, is it going to return to normal uh, or at least closer to normal in 2023, in 2024? And if you look at uh, a lot of the catalysts for this higher inflation rate, right? Some of it was just dropping, you know, billions of dollars uh, of money to the demand side, right? But a lot of it was driven by the supply chain, by shortages. We had the COVID lockdowns, right? Which, which created not only in the United States, but internationally, and those take a lot of time to unwind, Jimmy. I mean, 12, 18, 24 months. And, and so some of those are still unwinding, like lockdowns from you know, the spring and summer of 2020. But if you look, for instance, in China right now, there are still major cities that are parts of the global supply chain that are still on lockdown, right? There are you know, all sorts of ships, cargo ships that are sitting in ports, either with cargo to unload or pick up. Uh, and then you have, you know, the energy side, we have the war in Ukraine affecting the energy production and energy trade, uh, as well as food. And, you know, back, back to China, you have the Chinese Communist Party is not letting some farmers uh, farm out in the fields, even though they're alone and potentially wearing masks. So you have, I mean, honestly, some of this is, is self-inflicted. It's, it's policy driven. Um, and, and if these policies are still occurring right now, and they take 12, 18 to 24 months to unwind, then I think we're in for continued and sustained higher inflation for another year or two. So that's my prediction. That being said, my one caveat is in the long term, talking about a timeline of you know decades of 10 years or longer, I do think we have a lot of deflationary pressures. So I'm, I'm not suggesting to people that we are in for like a lifetime of hyperinflation or anything like that. So you are on team transitory, it sounds like. <laughs> yeah, well, it if depends. you zoom out and take a broad enough view of a, of a, of a broad enough time horizon, right? If, if transitory means five years, then I might be, you know, team transitory, I guess. Okay, fair enough. Uh, well, so let's, let's shift gears a little bit here. Um, talk about the markets. Bond and equity markets have been nosediving this year. I, I think the, the Dow was down, you know, two or 3% earlier today, last I checked. Uh, but what about alts, Andy? How have they been performing so far this year? 
Well, their performance has, you know, it depends on the segment, of course, but the performance of alts overall in many segments within the space has been very strong, especially when you, you know, compare them relatively to bonds or to equities. And the other thing is, you know, from the industry perspective, the industry continues to amass assets. So we're seeing more and more assets flow into the alternative investment space uh, in many cases at a much faster rate than they're flowing into competing markets from these, you know, traditional uh, traditional asset type products. Um, so for instance, uh, Jimmy, I have this link here. I'm on the DIYer.com. Um, and this is reporting on fundraising for non-traded alternative investments. And of course, the alts world is a little bigger than that, but but at AltsDB, we, we tend to focus on the non-traded alternatives. And so, you know, that fundraising totaled $32.9 billion in the first quarter of 2022, according to Robert A. Stanger and company. Um, you know, and, and so that number includes uh, non-traded BDCs. It includes interval funds. It includes DSTs. Uh, you know, the largest player in the non-traded REIT space is uh, Blackstone, of course. So their funds just had an incredible quarter in terms of fundraising. And I'm going to give you a quote. Uh, from Kevin Gannon, who's who's chairman of Stanger, and uh, he, he says we're projecting 120 billion in 2022 fundraising for all the alternatives that Stanger covers, uh, and that includes 45 billion for non-traded REITs and 40 billion for non-traded BDCs. So, Jimmy, that's just a, a couple couple of little corners of the alternatives world, especially the non-traded segment, uh, and those those segments of the market. Are doing great. They're continuing to amass assets, and they had an incredible year in 2021. Uh, a lot of these non-traded segments, and that's looking to continue in 2022. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right, Andy. I think we're we're uh, well on our way to 120 billion dollars in alternative assets, and and as you mentioned, they don't cover the entire alternative asset universe. They only cover those big slices that uh, that you mentioned. They I, I don't believe they cover qualified opportunity funds actually. So I'll get to that. In a minute, and just to kind of back up what you mentioned about Blackstone, I've got that article pulled up on my monitor right now too. It looks like uh, for the first quarter, uh, Blackstone as an investment sponsor um, raised twelve point nine four billion dollars in capital. So that's what is that? That's that's more than a third of that uh, total thirty two point nine billion dollar number. Um, Andy, what about alternative focused ETFs? Did you want to get to that now? Yeah, let's talk ETFs. And you know, we usually don't cover. ETFs at AltsDB were more on that illiquid side, but but Jimmy, you can see um, the shift, and I know you have the data, but mm-hmm. a lot of these alternative focused ETFs are seeing inflows, and even though some of the traditional, more traditional ETFs, equity ETFs, bond ETFs, are still seeing some inflows, uh, the rate of of capital is is a lot stronger, a lot larger into these alternative focus ETFs, at least so far into 2022, according to the data that I've seen. Yeah. And so the data I have pulled up here on wealthmanagement.com cites that, and by the way, this isn't even for Q1. So this is just year to date through February 25th. So this, this data is already a little bit old. Um, commodities ETFs gathered $8.5 billion of net ETF inflows, which is incredible considering that's less than 60 days into the new year. I mean, if you want to project that out to the entire first quarter to kind of make it apples to apples with the other numbers we were talking about 
probably looking at like 12 or $13 billion, I would guess, if I'm extrapolating that data. Does that sound about right to you, Andy? Yeah, I think so, Jimmy. Yeah. Um, and then let's, I want to back up and, and, and talk more about that study from Robert A. Stanger and company and actually go through the exact data that, that I have from, from that report as uh, reported by the DIYer. So again, it's $32.9 billion in the first quarter. Navreet's got $12.2 billion. BDC's business development companies got $8.9 billion. Interval funds right behind them with $7.1 billion. DST's rounding us out with $2.9 billion. Um, one glaring omission from that list that, that I've identified as a big opportunity zone guy is qualified opportunity funds. So to fill in the gap there, I'm turning to Novogradic. They survey a small portion of the total qualified opportunity fund universe. So they, they don't survey all qualified opportunity funds. According to their most recent report, which is through Q1 of this year, just like our other numbers, the funds that they are surveying have reached, have fundraised $3.97 billion. And they estimate that the actual number, since they're only surveying a small portion, is probably three to four times that amount. So call wow. it probably closer to $10 billion flowed into qualified opportunity funds in Q1 2022, Andy. So Qualified opportunity funds. It's like your baby, Jimmy. It is. It sounds like your baby's all grown up now. It's growing up quite a bit. Yeah. <laughs> it, it took a little bit of time to get it off the ground. We had some delays and some setbacks. It's a newer program, but it's becoming more and more popular. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it, you know, I, I don't know if I'm jumping ahead to, to our next topic, Jimmy, but it's, it's easy to see why, Right, it, that a lot of these high net worth investors and their advisors are looking for tax advantaged products that provide income, that provide uh, capital gains, and certainly when you see a CPI print of eight and a half percent, you know you figure you either need a tax free eight and a half percent, or you need a nominal uh, eleven or twelve percent return yep. to hold even on an after tax basis. Yep. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right, Andy. I think that's really just helped to accelerate the growth into alternative assets, a trend that's been unfolding for several years now. Um, I'm going to pull up one more report here. So we seem to be report heavy on this episode, but that's okay. And by the way, we'll have right. links to all of these reports in our show notes at altsdb.com slash podcast, if you want to follow those links and read some more yourself. But this report's from Prequin. They published it at the end of 2020. So it's a little bit old. Um, it's, it's before... Uh, inflation really started becoming a problem here about, uh, let's see, this is about 16 months old now at this point. They expected AUM growth in alternative assets to average 9.8% per year from 2021 through 2025. So, I mean, that's just huge growth in alternative assets year over year. If you compound that for five years, I think it adds up to I saw someone else that had done the math and it came out to 62% growth in alternative assets over just a five-year period, which is, which is really incredible. So Andy, you're the big portfolio strategy guy here, right? Um, alts clearly are continuing to amass alternative assets or sorry, asset inflows. Why is that? Why, why are alts so popular here? Well, I'm going to give you a couple of reasons. Okay. Uh, the first reason is structural. And I think there's just, there's a growing awareness of alternatives. And there's also just a larger universe of investable 
products that a retail investor, just your your self-directed high net worth investor can now access that, you know, previously it was more opaque. They were harder to access. Even if they were around, you might not know of them. That's not even to to discuss like the crowdfunding uh, offerings. Um, Let's put those aside. Sorry sorry to interrupt, but yeah, (laughs) I'm just thinking back like 40 years ago, um, my dad was a stockbroker. To buy a stock, you had to like call up somebody who had access to the, the, the NYSE, right? So it's, imagine how much easier that's gotten over the past you know, 20, 30 years. And, and that same thing is kind of unfolding with the alternative asset industry too, I guess, right? Exactly. And compared to traditional assets, like for instance, an index fund or an ETF, right? A private placement offering is still takes some more effort to invest in some more research to invest in. But again, directionally, there's just less friction. There's more information. So I think high net worth investors are more aware of the products. There's more 506C products out there that you know investors, a self-directed investor can just directly invest in. But I also think wealth managers, RIAs, advisors, I think they are increasingly aware of these products. Uh, increasingly, you know, they're linked in with platforms that allow them to invest in some of these products more easily. And to be to be quite frank with you, Jimmy, I think maybe uh, in the alt space, we've gotten some of the low-hanging fruit, but there's still a lot of work to be done to reduce that friction, to make it easier to raise awareness, both with the high net worth investors and with the wealth managers, the RIAs. And so it, if anything, that makes me more bullish because it's like, think how much uh, steam that this space has uh, and it's still, you know, com- compared to investing in a stock or an ETF, it's, it's still pretty hard. Uh, there's a lot of friction in investing in, in any of these private placement offerings. So I think the first reason is just structural, though. Um, there's more information, and it's just a more uh, accessible space to to a self-directed investor or to an advisor. Um, but I think the other reason, right now, especially when you're seeing CPI print and you know, eight and a half percent. Uh, the PPI is even higher, and and I'm not on Team Transitory. Like I said, I don't think any of these investors are on Team Transitory. Any, if they were a year ago, I think maybe they've quit the team. And so we're in a period of financial repression where you know bonds are are paying two, three, four percent, and the inflation rate's at eight and a half percent. So if you put money in bonds, and by the way, I do I do still own bonds, so it's not like I've abandoned bonds totally. Uh, but they've historically been ballast in, within a portfolio. Now they're a tax in a portfolio, right? I mean, I think it's really insidious to be. I mean, I, I would use the word. That's immoral. that's the that's the backdoor wealth tax essentially, right there, is it not? Absolutely. And I mean, I, I would frankly use the word immoral or unethical or insidious. But it's like it doesn't matter, right? There's there's no point in sitting around and stewing over it. Instead, I think a self-directed investor or, or an RIA needs to think, what am I going to do about it? If, if this CPI stays at 8, 9, 10% for the next 12, 24, 36 months, I, I can't have 50% of this portfolio in bonds because it's just going to get annihilated. So I think uh, you know that's some of the pressure there. And I think with, when you look at high net worth accredited investors, especially very high net worth ultra high net worth, wealth managers, um, they really need to look for tax advantaged products, Jimmy, because they're focused not on these nominal returns, but they're focused on triple net returns, you know, returns net of fees, 
net of taxes and net of inflation. And historically, you know, taxes have maybe taken the largest bite right now. I think inflation is taking the largest bite. But the thing is, when you have that eight and a half percent bite, um, you don't want to be paying hardly any taxes on that return or else you're going to end up negative in real term, real term. So I think um, that's where a lot of alternatives that have a projected IRR of 10, 12, 14, 16% become very, very attractive, especially if they're in some sort of tax advantaged wrapper, like a Delaware statutory trust, like a qualified opportunity fund to where the investor or advisor can say, okay, I'm pretty sure that, you know, if I reallocate these funds into this alternative product, it will be a liquid. Sure. But I, I can be, I can have some, some, um, some solid hope, maybe confidence, but at least some solid hope that it's going to outperform inflation, deliver alpha, deliver that positive return. I know. I think those are some good thoughts there. Um, I would, I would add one more macro trend is stocks may be overvalued right now too. So if you're looking for a safe haven, if you're looking for some more value, maybe it's not in the stock market right now. Um, I don't know where you find that value. It's tough to find value these days, but well, let's, let's talk about um, Andy, if I can put you on the spot, I'm curious if you have some picks for us, what are your maybe two or three favorite alternative asset classes? If you're looking to hedge against inflation, if you're looking for triple net returns, you know, returns after fees, after taxes and after inflation, what what are two or three asset classes you really like? Well, I'm going to give you two asset classes, Jimmy, and then I'll give you two wrappers. All right. Okay. How's that? Um, I'll give you more than you asked for. (laughs) As far as asset classes, number one, uh, multifamily, right? Mm-hmm. Multifamily is historically very, very popular space within alts, and it continues to be popular. And there's a good reason because no matter what's going on with the economy, people need a roof over their head. And historically, in periods of economic uncertainty and periods of higher inflation, multifamily has just been this resilient sector that has still performed. So you get the good returns, but you also get that you know stability. Right. And in other segments of the real estate world, I think uh, as an investor, they can feel a little bit more risky, right? Where we had storefronts that were in, in some cities just closed for, for like a, a year at a time. Like, what does that do to retail? And so I think multifamily within that space, uh, maybe self storage too, but there's just certain segments where you know the demand for this, there's, there's more demand than there is supply. That's not going to change anytime soon. And even if, even if you know, a COVID 2.0 happened and there were more lockdowns or whatever, people still need that roof over their head. So multifamily. Number two, though, again, with the inflation, uh, I like agricultural assets. I like farmland, right? And, and, and right now we see food prices spiking. So that's sort of a, a short-term factor. But again, I think historically, if you've invested in farmland or agricultural assets with that long-term philosophy and are able to ride out some of that volatility um, and are able to stay illiquid for that longer period of time, I think that uh, a lot of segments within the agricultural space have performed very, very well over time. Um, As far as wrappers go, I love DSTs, uh, presuming that the investor or the client has that investment property that they, they want to exit just because it's, it's a great way to 1031 into a passive product. Uh, and then of course, Jimmy, qualified opportunity funds, right? That's our 
probably our favorite rapper, at least for the time being, um, just because the tax advantages there are so massive. Yeah, I'm a big QOF guy myself. Uh, you've got gains that aren't driven from property investments, then I think that's a really good place to look. Okay, Andy, well, that's some great insight there. I think we'll uh, cut you loose there and wrap up today's episode. For our listeners, if you want links to all of the resources we discussed on today's episode, you can access the show notes at altdb.com slash podcast. And don't forget to subscribe to the show on YouTube and on your favorite podcasting platform so you'll be sure to receive new episodes as we release them. Andy, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks, Jamie. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you liked this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. The Alternative Investment Podcast is produced by the Alternative Investment Database, online at altdb.com. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and access the show notes by visiting altdb.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode. 